Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. So before we begin, this will be our first episode that is also on YouTube. <laughs> uh, so for our regular podcast listeners, nothing changes. You download the show, listen to it wherever, totally fine. But we're now adding a video component so that you actually might look at us when we talk. Uh, a fan I would not wish on my worst enemy, but here we are. So I'm Matt Goldberg. The other guy is Adam Chitwood. <laughs> In broad daylight. In broad daylight. In now, now you can see us talk, and the experience is totally different. Uh, yeah, and if you're uh, a fan of the YouTube channel and have no idea who we are, we've been with Collider for a decade or more. Uh, been on the website, writing a bunch of things, doing this podcast since... The first Hunger Games? Was that our first episode? That was our first episode way back when we were the collision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So welcome. I hope you enjoy our nonsense. Yeah. I'm the, for those who don't know, if you read the website, I'm that guy. So all good things. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so this week we're going to be talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, for those who don't know, the podcast is usually about new movies, but there are no new movies anymore because of the pandemic. So what we've been doing is we've been asking our listeners to vote on Twitter. What movie that is currently streaming on Netflix would you like us to talk about? So it's some film that has a pretty popular following and people just want to hear us talk about it. And this week's winner was Raiders of the Lost Ark. So we both rewatched that film and we're going to dive into it. And I think we'll also talk a bit about the other Indiana Jones films. Why not? And the film's legacy. And I'm then we'll a show. huge Kingdom of the Crystal Skull fan, so just watch out. <laughs> I like the part where he gets in the fridge, and they they it, it allows him to survive a nuclear attack. Um, <laughs> it's just classic Indiana Jones getting in refrigerators. And then what we'll do is at the end of the show we do something called Recently Watched, where we talk about a TV show or a movie we've recently seen that we just kind of want to talk about. So uh, that's the show. Thank you for joining us. Let's dive into Raiders, um, which is just. Just a still a good movie, in case you were wondering, if you were like, does Raiders of the Lost Ark hold up? And the answer is yes, of course it does. But something that really struck me on this most recent viewing is how good it is at delivering information without exposition. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the entire opening scene of Raiders, Indiana Jones has almost no dialogue up until he gets the idol. And just through the, the way Spielberg shoots him and shoots the people around him, we learn so much about this character without anyone having to be like, he's Indiana Jones. He's looking for an idol. He's trying to do this. He is that. Like, instead of other people telling us who this character is, they show us who this character is. And that's just really good directing and writing right there. Yeah, I'm going to say something controversial. I think this Spielberg guy's going places. He's pretty good. <laughs> but that also struck me as well. I mean, it's well, especially in relation to a lot of like action films nowadays or even just adventure films or anything you like there, there there's this tendency to build up kind of like a mythic quality of the character before you meet him or her um, with, you know, people telling tales about them or, um, you know, just overly expository dialogue. Uh, but yeah, like you, you know, he's introduced in silhouette 
which is something that uh, Spielberg uses really well in this film uh, with the cinematographer Douglas Silkholm, um, who shot all the Raider, all the Indiana Jones movies, but unfortunately was losing his eyesight. So um, I don't think he shot any other Spielberg movies after that. But like, just like, the visual storytelling of it is pretty insane because, I mean, even when like so when Indy is like trying to get the idol and he's got the bag of sand he doesn't come off as this like cocksure like i got this guy like he's kind of nervous like and he's kind of trepidatious like he knows what he's doing but he's a little bit uh you know always out of his element as we know now that's kind of indiana jones's thing um is that you know when he gets hit it hurts when he gets shot at he runs away (laughs) like he's scared um, he seems kind of like a relatable, normal human being. And so you have all this buildup of him like as an action hero. And it's constantly subverting kind of what you would think a hero would be because he gets the idol and he gets out and it's not triumphant. He's immediately met by this uh, antagonistic archaeologist who takes the idol away. And so when the antagonist is saying, like, give me the idol, um, not Alfred Molina, but um, the guy outside, and he's not like, you know, no way, I'm not going to give you these like, he knows, like, yeah, this is the smart thing to do. I will give this to you. So he gives it away and, and runs away. So, again, not cocksure, not someone who's like, you know, I can defeat anybody. Like, uh, you know, the characters that Adam McKay was making fun of and the other guys with Dwayne Johnson and, <laughs> um, jumping off the roof, <laughs> thinking they could live forever. Well, I, mean, um, I think that's a good point. I mean, there was that article that came out last year about how in their contracts, certain actors have it written, like, I can only be hit this many times because yeah. I don't want to appear not tough. And Indiana Jones is all about actually striking a pretty du- uh, difficult balance because Indy has to be tough enough to survive difficult circumstances. And he has to be smart enough and he has to be, like, heroic, but he also gets the crap kicked out of him. And that was the thing in the 1980s, like, heroes like Indiana Jones, John McClane, they were sort of a counterbalance to kind of the Stallone Schwarzenegger here invulnerable hero. And I think that while both have their place, I think the indie one is more lasting and, and certainly more relatable as a character because you're looking at them as, you know, someone who fights to live another day. And I mean, I think going back again, just to that intro scene, uh, what you have is, on the one hand, there's a lot of things there that make Indy seem heroic. Like, yeah, he's a little unsure of himself with the bag of sand, but, you know, he he survives all the traps and he runs out and he loses to fight another day. He gets in the plane. He's afraid of snakes. And I just <laughs> think that's very humanizing that he yeah. is afraid of snakes. And yeah. it's just like this thing now that and then, of course, it's great setup and payoff because later in the film, he'll have to go into the into the well of souls, which is filled with snakes. <laughs> yeah, it's that constant subversion of expectations. So, like, yeah, he gives the idol away, he runs away. Um, he's yelling at Jock Lindsay to start the plane, but Jock Lindsay is busy fishing and he's like considering, like, do I have time to get this fish out of the water before I start the plane? And then he's running with, you know, all these people chasing him behind. And then, you know, the snake, and then he's a professor. So, like, you if you think of like going into this movie, uh, like not knowing anything about it, like Indiana Jones, this hero that you've just met, is you know risking his life to get this artifact, and then you meet him, and he's actually a professor. Well, like, I, was, I did not know he was the same character. That's how radical, that's how radical because I didn't know who Harrison Ford was yeah. when I was a child, and I saw this movie, and I'm like, huh, who's this professor guy? Because he looks so different than Indiana <laughs> Jones. I think I saw the Last Crusade first um, because, of course, I did because I saw. <laughs> I had a tendency to see sequels before I saw the original movies when I was a kid because uh, I thought they were like the newer, like modern or like updated version. Um, <laughs> and I, 
version of Indiana Jones. Yeah, it was like when you go to uh, Blockbuster and you would get the newest version of AOL. I was like, oh, well, you get the new version. Jaws the Revenge is obviously the, the best Jaws. They have three films to get Jaws right now. By the time you hit Jaws the Revenge, it's going to be smooth sailing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just love that subversion because then, you know, he's a professor and it's just it just kind of takes you aback. But he's also just very noble. Like he, uh, you know, he he wants to make sure that everything is going to a museum. He's not doing anything for, you know, personal gain. Um and even that, uh, you know, the expository scene uh, kind of soon after that, where they're introduced to the idea of, uh, you know, they're looking for Abner Ravenwood um, and, uh, you know, they want him to go on this grand adventure. He just comes off as very, like, excited by the idea of these archaeological finds and not necessarily like, ooh, I'm going to be rich. Well, and again, going back to well-done exposition, think about that scene at the university. That scene where uh, Indy meets with the government guys that whole scene is just exposition. It's telling you the entire of what the whole conflict of the movie is about. It tells you what the arc is. Why is the arc important? Why are the Nazis looking for it? Uh, what is Abner, Raven, uh, Abner Ravenwood looking? Why is he looking for it? What does the medallion do? This is a lot of boring information that is delivered very effectively because the way it's presented is it's like you're kind of being let in on a secret. Like this is a secret mission. You know, you're being let in on this knowledge. Our hero, who we've already met and like, is excited about this. So we are excited about this. Like, it's all very well done. Again, something that on the surface seems like, oh, dry exposition that we have to get through. It's all about how it's delivered. And I think the way it's delivered here is very, very well done. Well, and even in the the visual language of the film, uh, you know, the the Spielberg wonder is a thing that a lot of people talk about. Spielberg uses a lot of long shots, but they're not like Bergman esque, like long, flowy, showy single shots. It's just a cleaner way of kind of letting you in on what's going on. A great example is, uh, you know, when um, we're back at Indy's house and he finally gets the mission. That whole scene from the doorway following Indy to while he's packing and it goes over kind of to the library and back. That's just one shot. So, you know, a lot of other directors may have, you know, cut to you do it on two shots. So you show each character's point of view. You maybe do some inserts of the stuff that he's picking up, but it just chooses not to. And I think it's all the better for it. Yeah. It knows how to hold tension in a way that doesn't call attention to itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, when we're talking about character introductions, you could say the same thing about Marion. I mean, look at Marion's first scene. Marion's first scene is not about like Indy saying, here's this girl I used to know. She was the daughter of my old professor and she, you know, we have a past, but she's tough. Like it's, it's all about her drinking a guy under the table. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's just so important. And it, it seems like an obvious thing, but you watch so many movies and other movies don't get it right. Like Raiders does, which is. What can I tell you about this character, not through, not through dialogue, but through action? Because action is going to hold your attention because we have to not just, you know, we have to pay attention. We have to, the, our eyes have to be focused on what is happening, not just listening to being like, well, she's a tough gal who owns a bar. And, you know, you, know, you have to be on board with, with both of these characters. And I think it does it incredibly well so that when we've, you know, Marion does start talking and does start having dialogue. It does start interacting. We have an idea of who she is as a person. And even just her actions, like when Indy walks in, you know, obviously there's some romantic history. It 
at first seems like, you know, um, it's, you know, blown over and everything's going to be fine. But what does Marion do? She doesn't slap him. She punches him. And that, again, tells you who she is and what kind of character she is. Um, but even the drinking under the table, like that setup and payoff that comes back later in the film when she's drinking with Belloc and it seems like she's kind of having a good time and she's clearly drinking as much as he is, but you know that she can drink people under the table. So maybe she's going to get out of this and, you know, obviously she doesn't, but, uh, you know, I guess we should mention the script, uh, was written by Lawrence Kasdan, um, who wrote Empire Strikes Back and, uh, Star Wars Force Awakens and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but the script is just so good. Again, with that setup and payoff stuff, you can see how filmmakers like Edgar Wright, um, you know, were probably influenced by storytelling like this. That is all about laying out a story very cleanly and making sure that like not a moment is wasted really. No, every, every moment sort of propels the film forward in a way that's really exciting. There's not really a moment in the film where you're like, I don't know if we need that scene. Um, and I think it works. It works beautifully. Yes. This, someone's tuning into this podcast for the first time and we're like, yeah, I know Raiders is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I found really interesting on this recent watch, I mean, if you don't know the history of like how the movie came about, obviously it came after Spielberg had done Jaws and Close Encounters, but no, most notably after 1941, which was super expensive. Uh, you know, he was using, um, you know, a lot of famous actors, comedic actors from SNL. Um, and Spielberg thought it was going to be this huge film and it was a huge bomb. And uh, Spielberg and Lucas always go on vacation together after one of their films opens. And so they were on vacation and Lucas pitched the idea of doing um, just kind of like a down and dirty movie based on like the serials. And it was going to be about a guy named Indiana Smith. Um, and obviously they changed the name, but Spielberg said he would do it, but he wanted to do it very quickly, very dirty, just kind of very um, not like handmade filmmaking, but like back to basics a little bit because 1941 was so huge. But also, we now know that Spielberg was a huge James Bond fan. And Matt and I have been watching all of the James Bond movies over the last couple of months um, in preparation for the release of No Time to Die, which is not happening um, in April now. Was it supposed to come out this weekend? Was that it? It supposed to come out this weekend, April 10th. Yeah. Um, but like with that, with that knowledge in my mind and knowing that Spielberg is a huge Bond fan, I can see him kind of creating his own James Bond in this because there are, you know... Um, I think there are ways in, in which Indiana Jones is a better Bond film than James Bond. Obviously, there are very different kinds of movies. One's a spy movie, one's an adventure movie. But you have this hero, you have um, the girl. But in the Bond movies, they always end in, like, you know, kind of a forced romantic um, twist and like a forced romantic kiss at the end that feels very cheap. In Raiders, uh, Indy and Marion uh, don't consummate the relationship because um, Spielberg doesn't show sex until Munich, uh, right? Is that the only movie of his that has a sex scene in it? I think so. Although, yeah. I mean, isn't it consummated off screen in Raiders? They're on the boat. Maybe on the boat. I mean, they kiss the on the thing boat. and then we kind of go to fly. Yeah, but then he falls asleep. But I don't. I don't know. I just felt like it's not. I mean, I, I get your larger point. Indiana Jones is not sexual in a way that the Bond films are overtly sexual. Well, but but also that kiss between Marion and Indy is is earned. In so many of those Bond movies, the the female character is just kind of um, just kind of like a paper character, paper thin, is only there to make Bond look cool. She's an object. Yeah, she's an object. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah the the Bond films. We're gonna when we do our long podcast on Bond, you're gonna you're gonna get some strong opinions. <laughs> 
so then by the time you get to, uh, you know, obviously when Mary and Andy first come back together, she's not cool with whatever happened between them. Um, but when she kisses him on that boat, it feels earned. Like it doesn't feel, it, it feels like they've been through something, something together and he's shown her that he is a good person and he's a good man. Um, I don't know. It feels nice. And so like, it feels like a story that's well told. And so again, he like Spielberg is hitting those action beats that you would see in a James Bond movie. And there's an antagonist, but the antagonist in this movie is really interesting because he's a rival archeologist and he's not kind of like a mustache twirling, like, yes, there are Nazis and he is clearly a Nazi sympathizer, but he's not, um, like he, he, he's not someone like when I guess, using Marion as an example, he doesn't want any significant harm to befall her um, if it can be helped. So the antagonist is not a good guy, but he's not like a mustache twirling villain who, um, you know, is just kind of a stand in, which I think is one of the problems with Temple of Doom as you just basically have a monster as the villain. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I, think a lot, I mean, I think Temple of Doom has a lot of problems. Um, I know that there are some people who love it to death. I think Temple of Doom is more it tries to use gore and violence as a personality and i think it has some moments in it that work really well i like the indiana short round relationship i think that's kind of cute but i also think there's elements in in temple that just don't work and they feel like they are even though the film is a prequel they feel like they're chasing the success of raiders rather than like what's the best story that we can tell with this character um yeah. although i was yeah. I rewatching Raiders. See, I, in my mind, like Temple is the really violent one because it's the one that necessitated the creation of the PG thirteen rating. Yeah. Um, and then rewatching Raiders, I'm like, holy shit, this film is also really violent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A guy's head explodes, and uh, Alfred Molina's character's death at the beginning of the film is is also it's just a full on body shot of a dead body with spikes coming through the head. Yeah. That guy, there's the dude who gets chopped up in the propeller. There's like when people get shot in the head, like blood comes out. Like it's 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 a hard PG. <laughs> it's it's a little dissimilar from the uh, the Disney hard PG. Yeah, so sure. Um, yeah, I was thinking about uh, Temple a little bit watching it, and that's kind of what brought to mind. And maybe I'm you know extrapolating too much just because I've been watching so much James Bond lately. But it does feel like like Spielberg took the opportunity to make his own version of James Bond, but to make kind of a better version. Again, that antagonist is someone who you don't sympathize with, but you can at least kind of understand. And it's it's these two archaeological forces, one wanting to use it for personal gain and the other wanting to get a hold of the Ark of the Covenant just because it should be kept safe. It should be somewhere where everyone should be able to get to it. Uh, You know, it belongs in a museum. and I think in Temple of Doom, you see, I mean, Temple of Doom is really dark, but I also think it's a little too cute. Like the the success of Radar, Raiders almost feels uh, like accidental in some places. I mean, we know that the famous scene um, in the market where Indy just pulls the gun out and shoots the guy with the sword was not supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be a big elaborate fight scene, but um, everyone was sick, including Harrison Ford, and he just didn't feel like doing it. He said, what if I just pull out the gun and shoot him? He said, yeah, sure, let's do that. Um, and in hindsight, it looks brilliant. It looks like, you know, a perfect character choice because it, it very much drills into uh, what we know about Indiana Jones and who he is. Um, but the, it does feel like a film that's full of happy accidents like that, that makes sense and, you know, obviously come from a place of creative inspiration. 
but in Temple of Doom, you know, you're adding short round for comedic relief. Um, and it just like gets a little too cutesy for me, in addition to all the, you know, gore and murder and and it's child a, prison it's stuff. It's a very weird film. Temple of Doom yeah. is just because it is, it's very dark, and it's like short round is like, hold on your potatoes, Dr. Jones, but he's also like you know, Indiana Jones becomes possessed by a dark spirit and slaps short round in the face. He's like, I love you, Indiana. Yeah. This is this is a this is a roller coaster that we're on emotionally. And I get like, like Kate Capshaw's character is supposed to be the a 180 from Marion, but like Marion is interesting and good and I care about <laughs> her. Whereas like Kate Capshaw's character, like I just don't even feel like she wants to be there. And she doesn't. Yeah. So it, it's just it's just really frustrating. Well, I mean, you know, it was frustrating for Kate Capshaw at the time as well because she was a pretty staunch feminist um, and you know women's rights advocate, and she felt attacked when the film was attacked for portraying this just super girly character. But I think that's part of what makes Indiana Jones interesting is that like he's the one who's afraid of snakes. Like he's the one who is. You know, he has this machismo and he is very masculine and very heroic, but he also has faults. But then when you add a character who essentially is having to babysit this entire time, it just makes for a less interesting adventure, I think. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just even structurally, just not as strong. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think like when you by the time you get to that minecart chase, I'm kind of I'm kind of burnt out. I'm kind of done. Like, I just I don't even feel the excitement anymore. And I just kind of want the story to be over. And yet I know, having seen it multiple times, like the minecart chase is like, no. And then there's another chase. And then they all get on the bridge. And it's just like, just it doesn't have the highs and lows. Whereas, interestingly, when you watch Radar, Raiders, there's that big chase to get the arc. And then, you know, there's that's kind of it. That's the, that's the action climax of the film, really. And then, you know... The, the plot continues, but that's there really is no more big action other than the raid, the arc killing everyone. But that's not like Indiana Jones does something. I just feel like the film is is paced in a just much, in a far more deliberate and and stronger manner. And I think again, going to what you said about happy accidents, I think if Indiana Jones had had an elaborate fight in the marketplace, that would have then felt redundant later in the film when he fights the the big Nazi later yeah. by airplane. That would have felt redundant so i think the film just comes out stronger um although not to say like it's lightning in a bottle and we never got another good indiana jones film because i think last crusade is very strong there are there are people who think last crusade is better than raiders i disagree but (laughs) i disagree i think i think last crusade is really good and like really really strong but like and i mean that and i i think it's 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 very close like i don't think last crusade is a bad film by any stretch i just think raiders is the significantly better film just by virtue of like how well it does everything and by virtue of just being the original like i think it's a sequel like kind of can build off your affection for indiana jones also i think last crusade is answering questions i don't really care about like how did he get a whip like i don't care like the whip is a cool (laughs) thing i don't need to know like he fell into the circus car and got the whip like i don't give a shit (laughs) i think uh I mean, to, to make one more point about the action sequences in Raiders or action sequences in Raiders, I think the action is more contained in Raiders and that's what makes it interesting. Like the plane, uh, the plane fight is an indie versus 50 guys. It's indie versus a guy um, mm-hmm. or like a couple guys, um, but one main guy. And then like, you know, the snake 
thing, that's a set piece, but it's not indie fighting a bunch of snakes. Like it is, you have a problem, you have your hero and you have your two heroes in this problem and they're trying to find a solution. They're trying to find a way out of it. Um, and so, uh, I think that's part of what makes the magic of Raiders work. And then Temple of Doom, while I agree, I think there are good parts of it. I think it's a little too much. Um, and, uh, like I like the opening musical sequence. I think that's a lot of fun, but it, it does start to wear on you a little bit as the thing kind of stretches on, which I think was partly due to the fact that Harrison Ford broke his back and like all of the stuff inside the mine was like his stunt double shooting all of that action. So I think they were just shooting what they could. They're like, well, let's just extend this action sequence because Harrison is, you know, laid up and can't come to work. Um, Last Crusade, I won't say it's better than Raiders. I will say maybe Last Crusade is my favorite, but I do think Raiders is probably the better film. Yeah, Last Crusade is like, I'm not going to like shit talk Last Crusade, you said, after just dismissing the whole thing. But... You know, I, I do think Last Crusade, like Last Crusade is a film like I can happily settle into because I think it also has an emotional core that I don't think Temple has. Like, I think what makes an Indiana Jones film is like, does it have an emotional core that works? And if it doesn't, the film kind of starts to fall apart and it becomes more artifice. So when you're looking at Raiders, like at the end of the day, like there's a bunch of cool things happening, but you care about what happens between Indy and Marion. Um, you care about what happens between Indy and his father. Those are like emotional stakes that really have you rooting for the character and say that this is a special guy. It doesn't quite work. I think we've tried now twice now Indian Sun, where Indian Short Round and then Indian Mutt. And it's just not the same to sort of yeah. be like, you know, I'm going to look after this younger person and that's going to be the emotional core. I don't think that clicks quite as well. And And to be fair, uh, Temple and Crystal Skull have their own issues aside from that, but I think missing that strong through line kind of has ripple effects to everything else. Yeah, I will say, yeah, I think the indie father relationship in Last Crusade is incredibly strong. Uh, I also think the prologue of that movie, I mean, even though maybe I didn't need to know where the whip came from, I just find that whole sequence thrilling. Well, I think John Williams just perfectly cast there. Uh, River Phoenix is amazing. And John Williams's music in that prologue is incredible. Um, and, you know, this idea of Andy learning at a young age, you know, he got this artifact, he gives it to the cops, like, all right, it's safe. And they give it to the thieves, like, for money. And kind of learning, like, maybe I can't, maybe I have to do this myself. Like, maybe I can't trust that I put this stuff in the hands of the authorities and they'll take care of it. Um, seeing a little bit of the origin there. But what I find it just emotionally really thrilling in that film is Indy, you know, again, we talked about in Raiders, what's interesting about Indy is that he's emotionally vulnerable or he's a vulnerable character in many ways, physically and emotionally. Um, you know, he's afraid of snakes. Seeing his him try and get his father to like him is really interesting and really sad. Um, but like, you know, reaching out for that connection and reaching out to, to kind of reconnect. And, you know, again, going back to James Bond, Spielberg is a huge Bond fan. Casting Sean Connery here as a, as Indiana Jones's father, I think, was a stroke of brilliance. And I think Sean Connery is really fantastic in the movie as well. It seems like he's having a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I um, I guess we'll talk a bit. We can talk a bit about this when we get to Bond. But few actors have had such a second act as Sean Connery. And I think Sean Connery sort of in that second act of his career between that and like Untouchables, like he found a way to sort of reinvent himself. Uh, after Bond. And I, I agree. I think he's really, really good in Last Crusade. He reinvented himself as a dragon. 
Did you know he played? I know you're about to the Zardoz reference. He reinvented himself as a man in an orange diaper. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Dragonheart. Come on. Yeah. No, I I, I got the reference. I <laughs> Dragonheart. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he's incredible in the in Last Crusade. Um, I also think, you know, so there's this idea that like, and we'll touch on this when we get to Crystal Skull. Like Spielberg and Lucas were very taken aback with people thinking that aliens didn't make sense, um, saying that, you know, India has always been rooted in this just mysticism and things that aren't necessarily real. Something that I every time I watch Raiders, I forget is just like how magical that movie is at the end. Like literally, like it's magic. <laughs> like they open a box and ghost spirits fly out because it is so like the, the filmmaking in the film is so realistic. And I think that that's part of what throws you off a little bit in Temple of Doom is, you know, as you said, he's possessed by an evil spirit um, and, you know, has his heart ripped out and there's this cult going on. Um, I think they they kind of pull it back a little bit in Last Crusade. Obviously, it's a cup that, you know, brings about life. But uh, the wrong cup, it murders you. <laughs> yes, yes. You turn very old very quickly. Um but I think it, it roots itself a little bit back more into realism. And I think the brilliance of that script is that when Indy, when Indy gets to the temple and he has to go through um, uh, the rites of passage to get to the Holy Grail, it's for his dad who's dying. Like it's not, he's not with his dad on this journey and doing it. So each step has an added layer of emotional resonance and emotional layer uh, or an added layer of, um, tension because you're wanting him to finish not to find the Holy Grail necessarily but to save his father who he's been with this entire time I think that was just like a stroke of brilliance there yeah no I mean it's and also his father is on with him on the journey in the way because it's all of his father's notes yeah that are helping guide him so it's not just like Indy figured it out on its own like it's it's the father passing the knowledge to the son that allows the son to save the father it's very well constructed at its, at its climax um, a lot of just hapless, you know, Nazi assistants had to keep going through the blade machine to figure that one out. <laughs> Neil, before the penitent man kneels. <laughs> the blade machine. Um, well, and I think what's interesting as well, and, and we've talked about this on a previous podcast, but if you've never listened to this, maybe you'll find this interesting. Um, so Spielberg obviously has daddy issues. So many of his films deal with absent fathers. And the this story was revealed in a the HBO documentary Spielberg that came out a couple of years ago. But for the majority of his adult life, um, the story was that uh, Spielberg's father left his family, um, and he never forgave him for that. Like his parents divorced, his father left, and you see that in ET is probably the strongest. I mean, that's a film about divorce. It's about a kid dealing with an absent father, and and the father is obviously very um, uh, villainized in that film, and in a lot of Spielberg's films. It wasn't until much later, I think it's the late 90s, that Spielberg found out that his dad left because his mother had an affair. And his dad couldn't bear to have the kids know that his mother had done it, so he decided to take the blame and leave. And so that's why, I mean, the Turning Point film is Catch Me If You Can. Um, that film is Spielberg's kind of like apology to his father because all of his other films had been like bad dads. Um and that kind of adds an, another layer of resonance to Last Crusade, um, which I think is one of the, you know, Last Crusade isn't necessarily villainizing the father. It's his son who so badly wants a connection with his father and so badly wants a relationship with his father. Um, and Catch Me If You Can is, you know, 
the mother is the one who has done wrong. And so um, it's the son trying so desperately to get his parents back together um, and, and working with his father to kind of make that happen. But I don't know. I found that really interesting. And I think Last Crusade is, is kind of one of the softer films. And, and you start to see Spielberg through kind of the 90s um, softening up a bit in his relation to his father. I think as of the time that documentary was made, his parents actually were back together. Um, which is very sweet, but I don't know. I found it very fascinating that like Spielberg's kind of like central thesis for much of his career was, you know, my dad left my family and, you know, screw you for doing it. And then well, finds out there is a screw you aspect, but there's also sort of like a, a yearning to understand and sympathize. Like if you look at close encounters, Richard Dreyfuss is like, bye family. <laughs> I'm going to go live with space aliens. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's sort of like sometimes I'm trying to understand my dad and other times I'm mad at my dad. So, yeah. you know, it's not it's not just one thing. But I agree that, like, Catch Me If You Can, which I think is one of the most underrated films in, in Spielberg's filmography yeah. and one of the most important for understanding who he is as a, as a director and as a person, uh, is, is a turning point film. And it's fascinating that, like, that it, there's that film. And then his 2000s films, like, become this post-9-11 trilogy yeah. of, like, Terminal, War of the Worlds, and um, Munich, and that that that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, now he's moved on from his family, and he's dealing with other stuff. A lot yeah, of other stuff going on. Should we do a podcast on the Terminal? Don't make <laughs> don't make me rewatch the Terminal, man. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> but yeah, that's. Uh... Well, and I guess in the 2000s, we also get Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, which is, man, I, there's a lot happening with Crystal Skull. Especially <laughs> if you go back to like the Frank Darabont draft, which is so different. Mm-hmm. And then that gets scrapped and Darabont goes and angrily makes The Mist. <laughs> Such an angry movie and I love it to death. <laughs> we don't get The Mist unless Frank Darabont is fired off of Indiana Jones 4 by George Lucas. Exactly. So George Lucas can have uh, have more dumb crap in Crystal Skull that doesn't work. To be nice aliens. Yeah. I just, you know, with, with Crystal Skull, it feels a lot like The Lost World. That there, mm-hmm. There's both these sequels that Spielberg doesn't feel particularly attached to. Like, he's sort of doing it as a solid for one yeah. reason or another, or he was excited about it at one point, but now he's lost interest, and now he's contractually obligated to finish it out so he's doing it like but it's not there's no spark there like even something like Temple of Doom which I don't think entirely works there's it's taking chances it's taking creative chances and I think that gives it a little bit of a spark whereas Crystal Skull is just like there it just exists as this like bad Indiana Jones movie yeah, there's not a reason for it to exist, really. Like, there's a reason for Raiders to exist. It's that Spielberg is angry and depressed and disappointed after 1941 and feels creatively inspired to do something different. Um, there's not really a reason for Temple of Doom to exist other than to, like, do another one. Um, and I think that's part of what you said. That's part of why that film lags a little bit. The reason to do Last Crusade, and I think Spielberg said as much at the time, was that he wanted to, like, make up for Temple of Doom. Spielberg and Lucas have both kind of disowned Temple of Doom, which I don't think is necessarily fair. I don't go that far, though. I do like that, like, the being up for Temple of Doom. It's like, yeah, I don't really care about film, but I met my wife on it. So, you know, that's what I like about it. Yeah. yeah, they're not crazy about the movie. I think they were both going through divorces at the time when they made Temple of Doom. So that's partly why it's um, a little dark. So 
dark. Yeah. But but that's you know the reason to make Last Day is to make a movie that Spielberg feels is more in line um, with what he wants to do and and for the fans. Crystal Skull. It was just because everyone was asking when is the next Indiana Jones, and so it was kind of like we have to create a scenario in which um, this could happen again. Um, and I, I mean, I make like I make it like five seven minutes in that movie, and I'm like, all right, I think it's gonna be. I, I'm kind of kind of liking it. I think it's oh no no lost me gone now i'm gone uh i think Kate Blanchett's performance is just way too over the top um and maybe even you you know you look at the previous indian jones movies like why cast someone of her caliber why not cast a good character actor um to play the villain it just feels i don't know there's a lot off in that movie it, it never really feels like it's clicking correctly you know abner isn't really a person and i think um you know, the, the actor even said as much that he was a little disappointed because he's just playing this cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs guy who's just rambling nonsense throughout the entire movie. Um, even Marion, it's a little disappointing when she comes back into the fold. Um, they don't really give them that much to do. And then Mutt is fine, I guess. <laughs> you know, the motorcycle scene is fun. I like that one. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it doesn't really work as a movie. It just, it's... Again, it's just sort of there, and it kind of reminds you of a better movie you'd like to be watching. And that's sort of why, why I'm, you know, some people are kind of gung-ho about Indiana Jones 5, because I think there's this kind of lo- this sunk cost fallacy where it's like, well, you know, we got to go out on a strong note. we gotta, we got to go out on a high note. But the problem is that I think Indiana Jones is just a youthful character. And I think Harrison Ford is just, like, unless you were going to make it like Logan, where he's, like, looking like a, basically a drama with a few action beats, and that's not the movie Disney wants to make. Um, yeah. You know, unless you're making that kind of film that like really lets Harrison Ford lean into his age and his gravitas, because, you know, as one of the few people who saw The Call of the Wild, he can do that at this point. Like it's, you know, no, I mean, I think like The Call of the Wild is not like a great film, but like he brings a lot of like lived in experience and like a somber kind of demeanor to to that character, like someone who's lived and lost and really like I think that that adds something there. And I think that would be cool to see that added to Indiana Jones, but that's not the Indiana Jones movie they're going to make. What they're going to make is like Indiana Jones. He's he's on another adventure. And I'm just like, he's too old to be on another adventure. So either also, if we, if you age him normally, if you age him into what, you know, as he ages at this point, the Indiana Jones films like are going to be in what the sixties, the seventies, like yeah. at that point you've lost the nostalgic charm and not saying like, let's be nostalgic for Nazi Germany, but like <laughs> there is that sort of classic adventure mold yeah. that the films were born out of. Like that's what they're going to. And when you put Indiana Jones in, like, you know, someone on Twitter joke, like Indiana Jones will be a consultant for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like it's at some point, like he's caught up to himself and it's not the same kind of world anymore. So at that point, it would just be better if you must have another Indiana Jones film and Disney must because it's a franchise and franchises can never die. At that point, you just need to recast the role. And that's not to be disrespectful to Harrison Ford. It's just the movie that everyone wants to make is not a movie that is going to suit him as an actor or suit what we expect from the franchise at this point. And if you've already traded out Spielberg for James Mangold, which I think is fine, just it's time to find a new actor if Indiana Jones must continue. Yeah. I struggle to find like what, you know, like what is a, a, an even interesting scenario in which that continuation works. Um, Cause I think that is part of the, part of the problem with crystal skull is it's set in the fifties. You've moved outside the realm of these 
serials that you know the the franchise was initially based on um and it just feels a little off i mean that being said i think mangold has done a good job of of putting his own dramatic stamp on studio films obviously logan but even something like um uh ford versus ferrari which you know is it's a great dad movie i really love that movie but it's also layered with kind of the subtext of, you know, someone struggling to fight against, you know, a studio mandated um, line that one must tow in order to succeed in this world. Um, but I don't know. As you, I think you're right. I don't think Disney's going to let it go that far in terms of being um, very ambitious or even um, just like thematically interesting because thematically interesting is conflict and and disney is not uh super into conflict these days well and also conflict doesn't get you to what you need which is that you know the emotional conflict doesn't create another theme park it doesn't create more toys it doesn't hit all the ancillary revenue streams that you need indiana jones to hit what you need indiana jones to hit is like kids will come see it and they'll want to buy disney fedoras and disney whips and like They'll want to, like, you know, buy the play sets. Like, that's what Disney wants out of an Indiana Jones film. They don't just want the movie, which is what James Mangle was able to get away with at Fox. Fox was like, yeah, if you want to make a, an R-rated Wolverine, go for it. We can't make X-Men stuff. We can't make X-Men toys anyway, so, you know, have at. Um, so, but Disney is just a different animal, and I just don't think, I think at that what for what Disney wants, you may as well just recast the role. Yeah. And have a yeah. shot having something decent. Otherwise you're going to have Harrison Ford's like, you know, CGI stunt double bouncing around like a gummy bear and trying to like save the day. <laughs> now I want to see that movie. Now you may be interested. <laughs> did with a little CGI Mutt Williams swinging on like a, like a monkey in <laughs> Crystal Skull. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have little faith that Indiana Jones 5 will be super duper interesting. Um, I am oddly happy that Spielberg's off it. I mean, he's not insanely young anymore. He only has a set number of films left in him. I would rather them be more interesting things than Indiana Jones 5. Yeah, I would much rather see him pursue. I, you know, it's it's funny. I'd much, even though I, it looks like that film will never happen now, uh, is the the kidnapping of Eduardo Mortega. I wish like that film had come to fruition because I think that's a film that I think would be really interesting for Spielberg. Like I, I would much rather see Spielberg try to make films like Bridge of Spies than something yeah. like Ready Player One. Even though I think Ready Player One is fascinating in its own weird way because it's such a weird pairing of material and director. I'd rather see Spielberg, you know, move more towards dramatic stuff because the marketplace is already oversaturated with blockbusters anyway. Or stuff like AI that's dealing with like really heady concepts. Yeah, like yeah, the kind of weird sci-fi films that he want you know was making at one point, or even even something like um, you know like a big historical epic like Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, Lincoln's incredible. Yeah, I'm all for the dad movies. Bring on Dad Spielberg. Yeah, do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anything else to add about Raiders, or should we move on to recently watched? Uh, let's move on to recently watched. All right. What have you seen lately? Uh, I wanted to take a minute to talk about two sci-fi shows that I've been watching lately, one of which is Westworld, which I've been recapping on Collider every week. Um, the other, which is Debs, which seems to have made little to no cultural impact at all, despite being, you know, the, it's an eight episode limited series from Alex Garland, who did Annihilation and Ex Machina. 
and wrote The Beach and Never Let Me Go. Um, he wrote and directed every single episode of Devs. It's dealing with these incredibly weird concepts. It, it takes place at a, um, I don't know if I've talked about Devs on recently watched or not, but it, it takes place in um, Silicon Valley, essentially, at this secretive like tech company. Um, Nick Offerman is the head of it. Allison Pill is kind of like his right-hand woman. And um, things happen inside Devs, which is their development program. Uh, and you spend most episodes wondering what is Debs and what's going on. You're only seeing Nick Offerman and Alison Pill and these characters act knowing what's happening and they're acting very strange. Um, but the show is dealing with themes of determinism versus free will. Um, you know, if something bad happens, was there anything we could have done to stop it? Did, did our actions cause that thing to happen or was that thing always going to happen? Um, and then interestingly enough, Westworld is dealing with the same thing, uh, this season, which to be fair, Westworld has always dealt with themes of determinism versus free will. Um, you know, in the first two seasons, it was mostly about the hosts, like do hosts have free will even? So, you know, they're coded, they're coded to be a mother, they're coded to be a madam and they're given certain characteristics. And so in one respect, you know, the humans believe that they have no free will because they're path is determined but over the course of those two seasons we saw characters like dolores and mave break out of their loops um and start to behave uh freely under free will season three is now out in the real world um with dolores and other hosts in the real world but season three is is uh examining issues of determinism versus free will in humans there's this ai algorithm called rehoboam um, and this algorithm determines everything that happens. It's a predictive algorithm that can predict what's going on in the world. And so you have this human character, Caleb, played by um, um, Aaron Paul, who uh, he was a veteran. Um, you know, he suffered PTSD and the algorithm algorithm is predicting that he will not succeed. Therefore, when he's applying for jobs, they won't give him jobs because the algorithm says he won't succeed. So that ensures this outcome that an algorithm predicted, despite the fact that maybe that outcome wouldn't happen if it had never been predicted. Uh, and it's been interesting. I mean, Westworld, I've enjoyed this season quite a bit. It's a bit more streamlined, um, a bit more point of view oriented. Um, and episode four, you know, had a couple of twists that kind of changed the game pretty significantly. But even bringing characters like William, um, it does feel like it is very much uh exploring those themes of determinism in this season. Um, and I'm enjoying it. You know, I, I, I like the show for better or worse. I wouldn't call myself a defender of seasons one and two, but I enjoyed them for what they were. Um, I, I didn't really get frustrated by them and, and kind of their loops, but it is interesting watching Westworld and then watching devs, which is tackling similar themes, but doing it in a far more Alex Garlandy way. Like if you've seen annihilation, that movie doesn't explain a lot of things outright. Um, it kind of lets you experience them and kind of take from them what you will. Um, so that's been interesting. I would highly suggest catching up on it. It's on Hulu right now. It was produced for FX, but since FX or since Hulu did that whole FX on Hulu thing, it's now only on Hulu. Um, I think there's only like two episodes left. So I've been enjoying both of those shows. Yeah, I'm definitely enjoying the third season of Westworld because I think they, instead of trying to outwit the audience and trying to get ahead of them and trying to, sort of do all these weird time jumps that kind of leave you disoriented, which did serve a thematic purpose, but also kind of made the narrative very frustrating. I think season three has kind of found a way to ex keep exploring themes raised in seasons one and two, 
without muddling the narrative too much. And so I'm enjoying this season. And uh, as for devs, I need to get around to it. <laughs> it's good. It's uh, shot by Rob Hardy, uh, his cinematographer, so it looks gorgeous as well. But it's fucking weird, man. Yeah, that, that's what I expected. <laughs> um, uh, for me, my recently watched... Uh, so on Netflix, there's also this documentary called Raiders, uh, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. And so the story is... These kids saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when it came out in 81. And for the next seven summers of their lives, they endeavored to do a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this film is kind of about their friendship and how they changed over the years. And now in the present day, is kind of like a through line. The one scene they were, ever, they were never able to recreate was the airplane scene the scene where India has the big fight. So they're trying to raise money to do it. And they only have a limited amount of time. And they also have their own job that they're taking time away from to film this. And it's a documentary where you can see the material is there because it's touching on a lot of issues of like their troubled home lives growing up and like the escapism that movies provided and why did they, you know, and how they grew apart and how they came back together and, you know, why, you know, why are some friendship bonds stronger than others? Like, I think there's really good material there, but the documentary itself is not particularly well-made. Like it's okay, but it's a little, it's kind of amateurish in terms of like, well, why did you decide to drop this information here? Or like, someone will be doing a talking head interview and in the middle, like in mid sentence, like they'll start fading out doing like, like as if they only had one long fade setting. And they're like, well, the fade out can only be, has to be five seconds. So (laughs) even though you're still talking, we have to fade out now. There's no way to abbreviate a fade out in 2015. So it was, it's very weird the way that it's made. Um, but the film itself, I think, is interesting in terms of like the way what movies mean to us and the way we connect to them and how they provide a form of escapism. Um, but I did feel like if you're looking for a story about like kids trying to find an outlet um, as they grow up and sort of this kind of real world boyhood, you'd be much better off watching Hulu's Minding the Gap, which is just a, a terrific documentary uh, that I think is kind of in the same emotional space as as Raiders, um, the documentary. But I think. Uh, does it much better? Yeah, Mining the Gap is incredible. It's one of the best movies of the 21st century. Yeah, it will also rip your heart out. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you'll feel you'll feel pretty devastated uh, if you want to talk about breaking out of loops. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mining the Gap. Um, so, but it's uh, Raiders is is perfectly fine, I guess, as as sort of a follow up to watching the real Raiders, but. Uh, I was a bit disappointed by it. I've had it in my Netflix queue for a while now, and it just didn't quite uh, live up as to my hopes, given that, again, the material is very good. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Now, I know I said that we did a poll every week, but what happened is with Raiders, Raiders basically came in a very strong second for two weeks in a row, and we're like, okay, we should probably talk about Raiders. But last week's winner was The Social Network. So we will honor that, and The Social Network will be our topic for next week's podcast. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for watching. I have no idea what that experience is like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, if If you sat through this without wanting to, you know, gouge your eyes out, kudos to you. Uh, Thank you so much for watching. Uh, We will be back with you next week.